I have, you know that I have a paper on toilet paper and, and I wanted to put it in the title. Uh, so it, it's basically a social media campaign. So how do you make toilet paper exciting? Uh, yeah. but, but my co-author said, no, nobody will care about that. Uh, but yeah, I have yeah. a toilet paper article, which I'm very proud of. Hello and welcome, Professor Kuhn. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, as an introduction for the audience, Professor Dr. Kuhn Pauls is a distinguished professor of marketing at Northeastern University in Boston and the co-director of its Digital Analytics Technology and Automation Initiative. He's also the president-elect of the Academic Council of the American Marketing Association, an author. Uh, he has written multiple books around modeling markets and with the most recent of them being, with no pun intended, it's not the size of data, it's how you use it. It's a great read, it's a fat book but still very, very relevant. Uh, I think the book came out some years ago. I will link it in the description below and I, I would really appreciate if you go, you guys go grab a copy. Professor Kuhn also consults multiple companies with prominent names like Amazon, Unilever, Kraft Foods, uh, Kayak, Heinz, etc. cetera. Uh, he has a very tight schedule. And I'm really happy that he can spend some time with us. Thank you for doing this, Kuhn. Pleasure to be here, Ashit. Thank you. Uh, to start off the discussion, I would want to understand from you, when you look at the media and marketing industry from a very top level view, from a 10,000 feet view, what do you see? This is kind of going back to uh, what has changed uh, since I wrote the book. Um, so, so in the book, I, I write about big companies and brand managers drowning in metrics, just having too many metrics and trying to boil that down to something you can actually take, take action on. Um, in, in the time that I was writing that, a lot of the smaller companies, specifically uh, away from North America, they didn't have enough metrics. I think right now, even the smallest company is drowning in metrics. So, so, so digital gives you so many uh, potential KPIs, as I call them in the book, that it's just uh, crucial for, for any company to, uh, to actually uh, see that. And so one of the key things that you see happening is that people just take whatever they get for free and use that. So, so a digital platform gives you metrics. Oh, I'm going to use that one without really asking themselves, well, what, what do I want to achieve? What does my company really wants? What, what, what are the goals of this year, right? And this could be, I want existing customers to buy more, or I want new customers, or I want to increase my thought leadership profile, something that is really based on what your company wants. And then once you have accomplished this, then you can go to the metrics that you, you can get. And then you can see whether there's an overlap between the two. So, so in both my teaching and in the book, I, I first say start with the vision, right? That's, the, that's yeah. the first chapter. So first start with what you ultimately want to achieve and only then take it to the available data and metrics that you have. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in these fishing expeditions that, uh, that you just take any metric and, and, and anytime something goes up, you're happy. When it goes down, you're unhappy. But without linking that to your ultimate goals, uh, you're, you're basically not going to get very far. I know you, you also work quite a bit with companies like GFK and Nielsen and Kantar. What are some trends that you see uh, since March this year? Well, that's, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, and and so, um, so, so my specialization, the name of my dissertation was long-term marketing effectiveness. So by training, I'm an econometrician. I look at data. And I see something going up and I think, hey, is this a sustained trend or not? And so if, if you look at this from a marketing perspective, both psychology and from a more quant thing is, so we see things going up and things changing and things going down. 
will will people still feel the same way next year? Hopefully, or whatever, whatever we can go back to our to our normal kind of set of things. Or which of these habits will actually stay? Uh, the safest bet is to kind of uh, see what has been trending before the pandemic, right? So, so take digital transformation. Digital transformation and, and people more purchasing online has been growing. It has accelerated. Uh, and and so, so to some extent, you believe that uh, the, the pandemic has basically uh, hastened this. But, but I believe, uh, and you see that already in data, that even when, for instance, lockdowns end, uh, things don't go back to normal. People still prefer to work from home more, right? If you look at outside of a consumer point of view, uh, the demand for office space is lower and people continue to, to buy online or to, uh, to pick up the brands that they have learned about during the pandemic. And, and so we see in a lot of cases that it's, it's a partial change. So, so the long-term change is not as much as the, as the immediate <laughs> increase, the immediate spike, but it's, it's, uh, it doesn't go back to the old normal. And so I see that happening in, in, in lots of settings. I have to tell you this, it was, it was Prime Day in Germany, the Amazon Prime Day for the last two days. And as always, Prime Days comes with, with massive discounts on Amazon products. Um, and Alexa is becoming a more predominant part of our, of our lives. But if you buy a Fire Stick, the remote now is, is Alexa activated. You have Alexa in the car, you have Alexa at home. Eventually, I think when, when I look at the, the younger audience, I think most of them will eventually move to uh, what we call voice commerce or conversational commerce, where, for example, if I'm driving back from work and I need washing powder, I can ask Alexa to order it for me. What happens, what's interesting there is suddenly, uh, all of a sudden, you don't see any branding and all the physical attributes like color, logo, et cetera, are gone. Uh, what do you think is the relevance of brand today versus private label when essentially the younger audience is moving more towards buying through these conversational AI systems? So my controversial point of view is that brand becomes more important. So, so, so you can be in your car and you can tell Alexa, buy washing powder, or you can say buy tight. And when you say buy tight, Alexa will order tight for you. So, uh, so this kind of unaided or top of mind awareness that a lot of brands are striving for, right? So, so if, you, if you look, you know, um, Kevin Keller would call this unaided brand awareness in my books too. Somebody like Byron Sharp would call that mental availability, right? So how, how, how much of a salience does a brand really have? And that becomes even more important when we have a lot of choices. So, so go back, so, so my, in the time with my PhD was the first dot-com craze, and people talked about frictionless commerce. Lots of economist papers saying, look, there's no more friction. The only reason to have brands is, is because, you know, it's hard to kind of judge quality, but now you have customer reviews online. Why on earth would anybody need a brand? And in contrast, we have seen that because the number of options to consumer has exploded, the kind of the shortcut signal that the brand provides, if anything, has become more important. So, um, you know, think about brands versus private labels, right? So it's, you know, it's, it's in a mixture of the two. And so, of course, private labels are very important. Uh, and you live, you live in Germany. Uh, Germany, Belgium, the UK have a higher, very high penetration of private labels. Uh, the US is a bit behind, but private labels are basically working when they provide more value to the customer, right? So they're great, great quality at a lower price. And so what you have to do as a brand, and there's lots of research about this, you do have to innovate and you do have to advertise. Uh, you do have to give consumers a good reason to, to call you out or, or to buy you. 
and, and what me, what I see traveling all around the world is that in some countries, for instance, Latin America is a great example. People say, well, well why should I buy a private label? Uh, you know, I, I'm worth it. I, I, I want to buy this national brand that all my friends love. And it also gets a very good kind of prestige to me. Uh, in countries like Germany, the Netherlands, the, the question becomes, why on earth should I buy the national brand? So how do you justify your price premium over a very good quality private label? And, and so the brands that can continue to innovate, that can continue to, to kind of build their brand and give consumers that reason, they will do very well uh, in the new environment. You, do you also see, uh, now that we talk about private label, do you also see some correlation between private label and store loyalty of sorts, be it for offline retailers or online retailers with Amazon, I mean, pure players like, like Amazon with Amazon Basics? So, so what, what I do see, and, and I think this is uh, one of my top-sided papers, right? <laughs> this, is, this is basically in a, a European country where we analyzed uh, what, what happens, what is the relationship between consumers' private label in their basket versus retailer store loyalty. And we have this beautiful inverted U-shaped curve that you want to find. So there is a sweet spot. So, so, so as a retailer, uh, why do I like private labels? Retailers like private labels because uh, you get the full control over the whole supply chain, right? Uh, and you have typically a higher percentage margin on it because you can negotiate with your suppliers more. Uh, a national brand typically has a higher absolute margin. So for a retailer, uh, you know, you as a consumer buying a private label that is only half the price of a national brand, it's not necessarily in my best interest. Uh, private labels can also help with store loyalty because they're only available at, at your retail, specifically if you brand them as such, right? So this is my retailer quality stamp. Uh, but then we find this kind of uh, uh, diminishing returns. And so we actually find that once you go over 50% private label, you attract people who are less loyal. You attract the cherry pickers. So, so we actually found for lots of retailers, this was in the Netherlands, that once they go over 50%, uh, then actually they attract the wrong kind of consumers to really uh, build their objectives and their store loyalty. So, so, so for retailers who are a lot below this 50%, there's a lot of benefit. Uh, retailers who are over 50%, we actually advise them to, to cut back a bit. Uh, there was even, and this was in the great Dutch price war, right? So the leader, Albert Heijn, actually experimented with stores with only private labels. And it was horrible. Nobody liked it, even consumers who only buy private labels, because they want the national brand as a, as a, as a reference point. They want to feel good about how much money they're saving. <laughs> so, so if you have the national brand next to the private label and you say, hey, you save 40%, that made them uh, uh, feel a lot better than you know, only having private labels in the mix there. Is there is there some kind of uh, some kind of correlation between brand and private label in terms of let's say emerging markets and and more mature markets because you you gave a very nice example of Albert Heijn from Netherlands. There's definitely a big one. What you see in emerging markets, and I'm overgeneralizing here, but but you know I did live in Turkey for eight years and can compare it to like Belgium and and the U.S. In most emerging markets, the brand you're using, specifically in public, uh, says a lot about you how far you have come in life and so forth. Of course, you know, that's also the case in mature markets, but for instance, Americans care a lot less about what signal they send to, to you by, you know, what shirt they wear than, than in a market like Turkey or Latin America or India. And so that aspect becomes less important. Uh, what we also see in, in all of the research on private labels, right? It's not poor people that buy private labels. Uh, you probably know that. Poor people will only buy the most expensive brands. 
it's the middle class. Uh, and, and it typically correlates very high with things like education, uh, not caring about what other people think about you, <laughs> and, and this, this, this whole uh, kind of, there's a, a profile of the typical private label shopper. So, so in general, what we see that in emerging brands, uh, sorry, in emerging markets, uh, brands are more important uh, and people are willing to pay more for them as long as they feel there's a consensus among friends and family that that brand expresses something positive. Uh, so for instance, in the research, and this was the odorants in Brazil and the UK, uh, we basically, for exactly the same brands, we looked at how, how is advertising perceived and how does advertising drive uh, mindset metrics? <laughs> we'll come to that one soon. Like, am I aware of the brand? Do I consider it? Uh, do I love the brand? And then sales. And, and so the difference we saw was really interesting. So in emerging markets, we saw that people are much more likely to pay attention to your advertising. So they don't zoom it out as much as people in the UK did. But then it was much harder to drive them from advertising awareness to actually considering the brand. Because they first had to ask all their friends and family, hey, you know, do you know this brand? Uh, is it a good one to buy? Uh, you know, what does it tell about me if I'm using it? Whereas in the UK, basically, it was very hard to get through people's kind of advertising uh, um, resistance screen. But once you did, it was very easy to get individuals to try your brand to just buy it in the store because they didn't have to kind of talk to, to neighbors and friends and family about, hey, is this a good brand for me to try? And, and, so, and so one of the big conclusions for advertisers was that in, um, in emerging markets, you really should go for reach. I shouldn't just target you as Rashid because I think you're the perfect customer for my product. I should also target the people around you. Whereas in the UK, you can go for frequency. So I have to basically uh, get my message across way more times before you pay attention. But once you pay attention, you're much more likely to quickly try my product. And, and so that was one of the interesting parts that, that we saw how these things different in emerging versus a mature market. So, so what, what you're trying to say is brand penetration is much, much more in emerging markets than it is in mature markets. If you go back to the, the Hofstadter's cultural factors, right? Uh, social distance is a, is a key thing there. Um, so, so now social distancing means something completely else, right? But, but, but so in his kind of thing, the, the hierarchical distance between people uh, correlates very much with, with how important brands are as, as a signal to how, to, you know, to how far you have come. And, and it actually took me some time to get used to. So, so in the US, if you go to academic conferences, for instance, the people who are the worst dressed are the people the highest up in the hierarchy. <laughs> and, <laughs> So I was like, as a European, that was that was a bit weird to me. But, uh, but yes, kind of to what extent you basically uh, can deduct some somebody's uh, standing in society based on which products they use and which clothes they wear is is a key uh, correlate of that. Companies are also collecting massive, massive data, especially especially the big tech. Uh, for example, uh, a very controversial uh, platform these days is TikTok. Yeah. Um, and what TikTok is doing is that it's it's there are data signals that are being collected as I'm watching these short form videos, uh, and the algorithms will eventually serve me what I like before I know I will like it. Uh, and that's and that's very fascinating. So the algorithms are better at figuring out what you will like before you know what you will like. Uh, and and what's the what do you what do you think is the renewed role of brand if algorithms are figuring out what I want? Yeah. 
that is a great question. And, and I discussed that a lot in these think tanks uh, that you referenced before, right? So, so, so one of the things that, that is always fascinating to me is what we as humans want algorithms to do for us. Uh, so, so, so for instance, in most of the markets, what we're currently doing is that we want the algorithm to make a short list for our own choices. So, so if, if I, you know, I never snowboarded, uh, I want to buy snowboards, what do I want the algorithm to do, right? I want the algorithm to narrow down to three choices, give me the information and let me choose. That, that, that's kind of the, the, the current, what we see happening more and more is the opposite, that we want the algorithm to make the choice for us. And, and so before TikTok, I only really saw that in Spotify. So Spotify, you know, in music, we do want the algorithm to show us stuff and, and then we'll give it feedback. So, so by either listening to it or not listening to it, we see, okay, uh, you know, what, what you presented to me is not really what I like. And so we can override the algorithm. The same thing happens for TikTok, right? So it was, so, so in entertainment, music, kind of which videos are funny to watch on the web, uh, you, want, you want the algorithm to, to, uh, to open your mind. You don't want to be restricted by what you currently have experienced. But then you, so, so you want the algorithm to make the choice, but then you do want to know what's behind that. And so for instance, in TikTok, you and I, uh, we basically trust that the algorithm serves what it thinks will entertain us most. But we need to have that trust. If we think that the algorithm is showing us what some political party or country wants us to think, right, then we are not going to be comfortable with that. Uh, so, so, so I, so, so we did uh, four or five years ago, we did foresee this coming. We only saw that in Spotify at the moment, but we do think it's going to happen in more and more markets that I actually want. I'm so bombarded with choice. I have so little time in, in anything except the stuff that is ultimately most important to me. I want shortcuts and the algorithm telling me kind of what to show is, is a great shortcut. Yeah, I, I really looking at your example for TikTok. I'm really tempted to ask you the role of social media, but we we keep controversial topics for for another time. Okay, uh, that's, that, uh, that's what for the second interview. Oh, <laughs> uh, because you consult these bigger companies like Unilever, Microsoft, Amazon. Since since COVID hit in March, what what is the conversation in the boardrooms like? What are the companies most scared about? What are they what are they planning for? Uh, in, in what they call the new normal? The number one they thought about was people, right? So the first thing they think about is their employees, uh, their, their suppliers, their customers. So what I saw happening, and that's actually very heartwarming, right? So, 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 so big companies, of course, they, they have enough uh, resources and pockets not to panic right away. <laughs> that's yeah. also important. But so the first instinct was to say, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen to our employees, our customers, our suppliers, and, and how can we help? And, and you see this, right? So, so Amazon has this big program to help small businesses survive and thrive during the pandemic. Um, lots of lots of companies shifted even their production facilities so to, to you know produce more sanitizers and so forth. Uh, and the, the other kind of big thing is kind of what you what you asked. Looking looking several years ahead, as some of these big companies do, which of the changes we are seeing now will really stay? So, so what has people's reaction to the pandemic taught us about human nature? And, and how do we best, uh, you know, give give our customers what what they want in the long term? Uh, and, and so this this has to do with simple things like reducing office space. Um, so, so so my brother is uh, is, is heading a, a law department in Belgium, and, and he was complaining to me before the pandemic that he he always wanted to spend one day a week at home, and he was never able to 
because there was always one meeting that he had to be physically in the room with the other folks to, to influence the decision. And so he's like, well, now everybody is on their computer. And I was saying, well, the companies that I work for always had that. But so now everybody's on the computer in a video meeting. And so, and so you can work from anywhere. And so his company has decided to reduce office space by half, you know, in long term in the future, because, because they see that happening. Uh, the other thing, and this goes back to my, to my recent Harvard Business Review article, right? How should you change your marketing in the pandemic? Uh, so what, what you see happening, uh, and there was just a, a wonderful uh, piece with, with Mark Ritson and, and Lebinair about this too. So you should really kind of, of use this as, as an opportunity to rethink, you know, what does your brand stand for? Uh, what do we really want to communicate? Um, and, and for some brands, this, this, is, a, this is actually an opportunity uh, to, to get into that mix. So, so the one thing what happens, of course, with uh, not just with the crisis, right, but, but also with the big change, is that that people uh, are open to learn again so so if you in march if you wanted uh, toilet paper or hand sanitizer and your favorite brand was not available you had to think about hey you know which other brands do i consider and so you were willing to learn again because the situation was different and so in these periods where people are willing to learn this is when uh, when when big changes can happen to also brand fortunes so, so this actually may be an opportunity for your brand to, uh, to, to, to stand out and to get much more uh, kind of people's attention because otherwise we're stuck in our habits and we don't see the need uh, to change uh, our brand choice or our consuming habits at all. As, as they say, uh, crisis is a, is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, it, it is, and, and so it reminded me, uh, this, is, this is, I think, in my undergraduate, so this is a very long time ago, but I read this fascinating article that talked about uh, mobile phones. Um, and, and so it was basically by a practitioner, right? So, so a, a manager that went all over the world and realized that, that, that phone penetration kind of goes from 10% to 90% of the population within 18 months. That was it. <laughs> so he saw that happening in India, in Russia, and there and there. And he's like, well, if you think about your marketing spending, right? So, so yes, you can spend before that happens and after that happens, but it's really in these 18 months that people are learning. So, so, so your penetration goes from 10 to 90%. That is, that is the, the perfect window of opportunity that you really have to get out there with your brand. And then you become you know, the mobile brand of choice. And then it's gonna be very hard for challengers to dislodge you later on. It's no longer a secret and most companies, I think eventually, sooner or later want to become more data driven because they have they have understood that the next stem of growth is essentially coming from the data opportunities and the and the kinds of services that you can build build on top of that uh, when you work with these these companies what do you think is what do you see as the biggest pain points for them is it is it too many kpis is it not having a clear understanding of consumer journey uh, what do you see Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so the challenges really depend by company, I would say. So, so this is why my book clearly kind of lays out the building blocks because, and there's an assessment, which is, which is for free on the website to kind of see where are your pain points of your company. So, so for some companies, it's, it's basically that, that the people that have to execute the strategy have no idea about the reasons behind the strategy. So, so, so why do I say start with the vision? It also means that as senior leadership, you have to communicate that to people that are making the decisions. So, so if, if you're deciding, you know, whether to spend your advertising on, you know, offline versus online, right? Or on Amazon versus on, 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 on some of the other digital platforms, 
then then uh, do you know as the person making a decision whether your company wants to uh, grow a lot more new customers whether your company has a priority of growing existing customers more and and, and all of these things so so starting with the vision is very important and and so in, in some of the studies half of all the benefits of a marketing dashboard simply came from people sitting together to hash out well what is the trade-off between our objectives <laughs> so, so yeah. just kind of kind of that everybody's on the same page is is hugely important and then so for some companies it's really getting good quality data right and and so you know getting the data lake uh, you know making it easy for people to assess the data and to make it searchable and to do that for other companies, especially big companies, it's much more of a political problem in the sense that there are all these entrenched interests. So if, if you show, hey, you know, it's optimal uh, for my brands to cut TV advertising by 20% and increase digital by 30%, you have a TV person in your company who is gonna feel threatened. And so how do you overcome that resistance? And, and how do you uh, make people open for experiments? Um, so, so one of the coolest companies I work with, it is, it is an FMCG company, right? So, so they were interested, so they were launching, uh, you know, new products and they always did it with TV advertising and social media. So, so they're like, well, we really want to figure out what is the effect of, of social media in addition to TV. And so, of course, you can analyze past data, but there's other things going on. So what they said, and they chose two Eastern European countries that were very similar to each other. And they said to the manager in Poland, look, the new product we're launching, where we bet the whole company up, we're going to launch it without social media in your country. And we're going to compare that to, the, to a similar country where we do have social media. And so, and, and so think about how, how powerful that field experiment is, right? So once you run that, then you can show for your own company, well, this is the impact of social media. Of course, what that requires is the manager in Poland to be fully trusting you as a company that you won't dock his pay or complain about his metrics going down because i always say nobody wants to be in a control group right if you have if you have an experiment of a marketing action you think will really work you don't want to be in the control group you want to be in the group that 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 gets the success so you need a lot of trust within companies in terms of experimenting failing fast uh, learning from your experiences to make a lot of this work so, so this is basically, and this is why I say it's not the size of the data, it's how you use it. Is, is do you have enough trust within the company that, that data and use of data will not just be in the best interest of the bottom line, but also help the careers of the individuals that, that have to gather the data and use the data to, uh, to come up with the kind of, of numbers that we love to see in data-driven decisions. But for, but for brand leaders who have who today have market dominance and that has primarily come from broadcast media, uh, TV. What advice do you have? Because I also sort of feel for them when they have to get into discussions of, of building a data lake and making use of data. And also the whole digital side of things is, is very fragmented, so to say. What advice do you have for, for these brand leaders? Well, so first of all, they have to be open to new experiences, right? And, and it helps to actually go on TikTok yourself <laughs> and see what, 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 what young people are experiencing. But, but if, if you think about it, so in the old days, it was really kind of the strict funnel. So you kind of had to buy awareness by spending a lot of money on, on a share of voice on television. And then you had this kind of some people became uh, aware of your brand, considered your brand and so forth. So, so to a large extent, of course, you know, creative and what you said was always important, 
but you kind of could buy your way into it and smaller brands didn't have the money to do it. So now there's just a, a way lower threshold for challenger brands from all over the world to come and make inroads in your category. And, and they do that often with very scalable, very agile and, and low initial cost uh, marketing activities. And, and, and they, they trust much more what people have called pinball marketing, right? So instead of marketing being this big bazooka <laughs> that you spend a lot of money on your target audience, pinball marketing is you launch the ball, so you still have to invest some stuff, but then it gets, it gets uh, picked up by, by social media, by fan groups uh, and so forth. And, and then ultimately, it's more of a play than, uh, than it used to be before. So, so be open to customers telling you what's, what's, what's good and bad with your brand. Be open to customers also on social media or in reviews, right? Telling you what sucks about your products and what you can do to improve it. And, and, and then just, you know, it's an ecosystem that, that you play in. And, and I like this kind of pinball machine metaphor. Because it also means that sometimes you launch something and nothing happens, right? <laughs> I mean, if you want to go viral on social media, you know how tough that is. But sometimes you do something, even for something as mundane as toilet paper, and, and people really pick it up and it creates excitement. And so, so, so you have to basically, you know, look at your marketing a little bit like your R&D department. You try lots of new creative ways of marketing. And, and at, at relatively little cost, by the way, and some of them become extremely high ROI and become, you know, they get picked up by everybody. And, and most of them actually don't uh, have much effect. So, so kind of being comfortable with uh, not being able to tell very precisely before you do something what the ROI is going to be, but to continue to experiment, I think is very important. Since, since we are talking about the online world and the offline world, I know that some companies do that really well and some companies struggle trying to integrate these two worlds. How do you see that? What's the, uh, for example, a Facebook like or a retweet, how do you tie that back to metrics like brand equity or market share or even to financial metrics like positive cash flows or shareholder value? So by trading, I'm an engineer. So, so I look yeah. at everything as, as input, throughput and output. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically it, right? So, so the input is the decision that you make. That could be a marketing action or something like that. The output is your goals, right? So, so that could be donations. That could be, uh, you know, sales for a for-profit company or profits. And, and so most of my research in the last two decades has been on the stupid. So which kind of metrics in between? You know, intermediate metrics is one way to look at it. Will tell you very quickly whether you're going in the right direction with your action. And so, and so in the old days, we used to look at surveys a lot, right? We would ask consumers what they think about you. Now, so the cool thing online is that you can get much quicker feedback uh, based on what people do online. And, and so I really like online as a faster way of gathering some of the data that would take us a lot longer time. Uh, on the other hand, you know, never make the mistake of thinking that online is the whole world, right? So everybody, everybody can, you know, when somebody comes to me says, hey, I, I analyze Twitter and this is what consumers feel and think about your brand. I'm like, no, it's a very biased sample. I mean, how many people talk about toilet paper on Twitter? So, so, so some of my studies show that, for instance, offline word of mouth is very important for much more mundane products uh, such, as, such as this one. And, and that basically you have to try to integrate the different signals. Just like as a consumer, I love to integrate my online and offline worlds. As a company, you have to look at the different signals that they're sending uh, and then basically putting them next to each other and saying, hey, this is, this is actually something that has some, some real signal value. 
Uh, but but so that that's what I do with companies. I look at the whole system, right? So suppose you want to explain sale. What can what can drive sales? Which metrics do we have on them? And then you quantify. You say, well, every time somebody likes me on Facebook, uh, controlling for everything else, you know, in the long term, this is how much more sales I get. And, and once you have that quantification, then you can uh, you can test that out. You can adapt it, and 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 that's something that is that is very usable to make decisions. I was reading this uh, this other book on digital strategy by by uh, Sunil Gupta from the Harvard Business School. Yeah. You work quite extensively with him, and he had a section in the book where he talks about how much is a is a Facebook like word for for Coca Cola, for example. But more specifically, to what extent does a marketing channel or a metric drive performance? How do you get to breaking it down more specifically? to a particular channel or a metric? What I typically do is, is to look at the level of the decision make that brings me in. And I say, okay, what is, what is really your main uh, decision and purpose? So, so let's say that you're somebody who gets the budget for, uh, for marketing communication for the brand. And it's a given. <laughs> so you can go back to your boss and ask for more money, or it's very hard. And that's the case in a lot of companies, right? The people who set the budget, typically in finance, and the people who spend the budget and allocate it are, are different folks. And, and so, so to you as a marketing decision maker, I'm like, well, you know, what are your real decisions? How much to spend offline and online, and then online in which channels? Uh, and, and at that level, we basically will typically look at your fast data. And so, uh, so we will look at, we will build a model of everything that drives your sales. And we will say, well, controlling for everything else, if I can increase this one, and it could be, you know, engagement, uh, that could be um, the number of people who search for your brand. Uh, and, and so to what extent does that then translate into, in, into sales? So, so we built the model first conceptually. So what, what do you as a decision maker and you know your industry uh, think should all be driving this? We find some good data on it and then we, we basically run the model and, um, and we quantify that. And then moving forwards, we use the model and we adapt it when it's needed, right? So it could be kind of with the pandemic that now uh, things that you do online have more effect than offline. And so we want an, a continuous updating of that system to, to see the major changes. Uh, because we talk about, we, we are getting into talking about data a little more. In the yeah. book, there is a whole section where you talk about selecting the right KPIs or the right metrics. And then what blew my mind is you talking about how do you go from having the right KPIs to narrowing it down to what you called the, the KLPIs, uh, the key leading performance indicators? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that in, in a little more detail? Yeah. And so this was inspired by as a little anecdote of when I moved to Turkey in, in 2008-2009. So down our street uh, was the, the Turkish uh, branch of a, of a very famous top six in the world uh, car manufacturer. And so th this, this was 2008. Uh, so this was in a time where uh, brands were spending very little of their marketing budget online. And, and so lots of kind of brand gurus said, look, consumers are spending so much time online and you're only spending this much on online marketing that, you know, that must be wrong. And so when I did analysis on the return on investment online versus offline, it always came out that online marketing had more return on investment. So for every dollar or euro you spent, you get more back. But of course, I was thinking, well, that's because, you know, brands only spend 2%, right? So, so, so if they would spend a lot more, you know, uh, diminishing returns would set in and you wouldn't see that. So this was a company that spent in 2009, I think, 40% of all the budget on just its Facebook page. 
just that one. And so, and so it, it, it was only kind of, I think, the, the, the sixth or seventh car manufacturer in the country, but it had the best automotive site on Facebook. And, and Facebook was very important in Turkey. At that moment, Turkey was the third biggest country on Facebook. And so this was all fantastic. How long ago was this? This is now uh, 11 years ago. So, okay. <laughs> so that's, uh, and, so, and so, so this was at the time also when if you got the Facebook like, it was actually worth something. Yeah. Because if you would then kind of put things on your on your Facebook page, uh, Facebook would show it to to most of your followers. That has completely changed later on, as you know. Uh, but but so they were reaching lots of people. They got all of these compliments, and their sales didn't go up. <laughs> so they're like, oh my God, what's going on? And so they looked at engagement on their Facebook page and so forth, and and so nothing really strong. And I'm like, but wait a minute, let's take a step back. What do people really have to do before they buy your brand? And they say, well, they really need to have a test drive. So this is, this is just, you know, knowledge of the industry, right? So without the test drive, people don't buy your brand. I'm like, okay, let's check. If you have more engagement on Facebook, do you get more test drives? And we didn't. So, so I'm like, well, test drives are a very important KPI. It's a leading indicator of your sales. Uh, but your Facebook engagement is not a leading indicator of your test drives. So, so there is something wrong. And then you can dig deeper, right? Maybe it's, it's the wrong people. Maybe the people who love you on Facebook can't even afford to buy your brand. Uh, maybe uh, kind of they love the entertainment value, but it's not really featuring high in their decision to, to, to which, which car brand to buy. So, so then you can dig deeper and talk about things like audience and creator. But so, so just showing that, that uh, so, so advertising online goes up, you do get more Facebook engagement, but you don't get more test drives later on. That was a key uh, way that, that they showed that they should you know, refocus their marketing strategy. So, so, so I like leading KPIs. Uh, why is that, right? So if your sales go down and, and you have a KPI that's not leading, it, it can help you to diagnose the situation. Uh, but so, so suppose that, you know, your, uh, your sales go down and your Google searches go down at the same point. So that, it's kind of interesting as a diagnosis, but it doesn't help you to, to stop the situation from happening. Whereas if I have an indicator that says, well, if that one goes down, then three months later, your sales will go down. Then you as a manager can do something to stop that. So it's, it's, a, it's a flag for action. And, and so I like to have, uh, you know, metrics that explain a lot in your goal, but also metrics that change before your ultimate hard metrics like sales uh, change. The other interesting part in the, in the book is where you talk about mindset metrics and, and what, what they mean. And can you tell us how does it affect marketing mix at the end of the day? And what are these mindset, mindset metrics? So it, it affects the marketing mix a lot. So, so mindset metric is what's going on in the minds of your prospective customers, uh, very simply. And so this is what they think about you and competitors, what they feel about you, uh, how urgent the product category is, is in their mind, things like that. And, and, and so as marketers, we really want to get as detailed information as possible in, in what is in the mindset of prospective customers. Um, and, and so as I said, uh, what I do in a lot of my papers is to compare what we used to know in the more traditional market research with the new market research. So, so and I did this across 15 different product categories, all the way from cars and internet services to toilet paper, actually. So, so, so we had for about 36 brands, we had 
we had nice uh, data weekly about uh, what people did online for the brand. So this is paid, owned, and earned. Uh, visits to the website, how long time they spent there. And then we also had good survey metrics about how many people were aware of the brand, how many people considered the brand, how many people love the brand. So we had all of these very classic things in the, in, in the purchase funnel. And so we looked at how predictive were these things of sales. And so we actually showed that for, for the average brand, the online activity was absolutely key in explaining sales in the same week. But if we want to predict sales three months out, then the, the survey metrics were more important. Very interesting result. And so we dig deeper into why this was. And it's very simply, so online you know what people do, but you don't know why they do it. So if I go to your company's website, and you're all excited, you're like, oh, Kuhn is a prospective customer that wants to buy me. Or I could simply be there because I bought your product, and then I, I'm asking for, you know, I don't know how to use it, so I'm asking for questions. So there's, there's some great research by Microsoft uh, that uh, more than, I think, 55% of all the people that go to their website is questions about how to use the product that they bought. It's, it's not that they're in the market for, for buying the product again. It could also be that I had already decided for your competitor's product, but my boss or my wife uh, criticized me, and I go to your website simply to get information to counteract uh, the, the opinion of my boss or wife. So there's so many different reasons why people come to your website, and you don't know that unless you ask them. So, so, so the big conclusion, of course, of that research is that, that there is a, is a role for different kinds of market research. You still should interview some people sometimes. You should still ask them questions about why they do stuff and why they don't do stuff. And in addition to this wonderful information that, that we have on the activity of people, what they actually do and search for and click on online, uh, I think we are now in, in the perfect kind of marketing uh, position to, uh, to, get, to get much more insights about what is going on in our prospective customers' minds. True. Also, because you talk about market, marketing research here, the, the more traditional ways to get to customers and talk about and, and try to understand from them the attributes, benefits, and claims. But now with companies getting more online and, and the kind of data that's, that they are collecting, and specifically for more D2C businesses, how has the role of market research changed? Uh, is traditional market research still relevant in some sense that you cannot do with the online research? This is an absolutely great question. So, so and, and we had that, uh, this is actually very threatening to what I would call the traditional data consultancy firms. So, so, so specifically, you know, young brand managers like yourself, they, they typically, uh, I mean, they have grown up, you know, digital native, and when they become brand manager, they typically don't get much budget for market research. Your company gives you a computer and internet connection and say, hey, go figure it out. And, and so um, if you look at data quality, for instance, most brand managers are just very happy with seeing trends on, on the, you know, they get for free online. Instead of saying, okay, so if I would have to go to a consultancy firm, I would have to explain to a bunch of old geezers my business, and then I would have to pay them and wait two months to, to great quality data. That is, you know, holistic and that has, you know, big enough sample size and is not biased. And, and so companies have a much harder time nowadays to sell that, to sell their value. So, 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 so how do you, how much do your decisions improve? with a 10% improvement in data quality is something that, that nowadays young brand managers, apparently they're not even asking themselves the question and their company isn't either. And so we see that happening. So it's a lot harder for, um, 
for kind of the, the more deeper, the more established consultancy firms that, that are specializing in data quality to show the value of what they do. Um, one of the interesting things, and again, this is from my time in Istanbul, I, I realized that um, so, so is, the Turkey saw this huge increase in TV advertising when I was there. And, 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 and more than half of it was completely wrong. <laughs> so I was like, well, this is, this is just ridiculous. I mean, from what I know with the creative and targeting, this is never gonna have any effect or this is way too expensive and so forth. And so then I asked kind of advertising agencies in Istanbul and they said, well, last year when, when, when things, you know, when the budget went up, then people still wanted to pay for data quality. So, so they still wanted to pay us for focus groups, right? And so to see which of the two kind of creatives that we proposed was the best. Now they don't want to do that anymore. So they're happy spending $50 million on an ad campaign without spending $10,000 in figuring out whether that was the right thing to show. And it's because this year the CEOs, you know, they don't respect marketing in the first place. They just want us to show us a few pitches and then they decide themselves in, you know, having the strange assumption that they know all of their, their 50,000 consumers, they decide themselves which creative is best. They don't want the focus group anymore. They don't want any metrics in place to see if the campaign is running, if it's being received well or increasing sales. They don't care about this anymore. So, so that was kind of the, um, the, uh, the problem that, uh, that those advertising agencies faced. So, 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 and that has always amazed me, right? I mean, why would you run a $50 million campaign and, and potentially throw away all of that money for your firm if you can spend, let's say, 1% of that in, in market research before and after to say how it's doing and then how you can improve it the next time. But it's, it's still an uphill battle uh, to convince uh, managers of that. Uh, what's, what's your sort of advice for people who are entering marketing, which is becoming a lot more data-driven today? Uh, what's the right course of action? Uh, it's great. So marketing is still fantastic. So <laughs> congratulations to go that way. I mean, it's still in my eyes the, the best combination between uh, social sciences and hard sciences that you can imagine, right? We deal with psychology, sociology, math, and so forth. I think the big difference between now and maybe 30 years ago is that people high up in marketing and the organization, especially the ones that I consult, uh, they know math. They didn't used to be. So, so when I started my consultancy career, if I talk to, uh, to, to, to people that hired me, they're like, well, yes, we understand that you have to use an equation, but I can't explain it to my boss. My boss cannot look at an equation. He will go completely crazy with that one. So it used to be that a lot of people who went into marketing went into marketing because they hated math. That is just, and they hated, they hated you know, everything quantitative. They went into marketing for the creative and, you know, and so forth. And so what you saw in organizations was that people higher up in marketing, the higher up you went, the less they knew about more quantitative side of it. That's no longer the case. So the companies that I consult, you know, the chief marketing officer and so forth can talk one-on-one -on -one with the chief financial officer and talks in quantitative terms about what works and what doesn't work. So creativity is still very important and, and marketing is part art and part science, but the science aspect of it has so much increased, uh, I would say all over the industries and the world. So, so, so in marketing, I mean, definitely go take a class on creative writing. I think about how you stand out, how you create differentiation for your brand but also make sure that, that you follow courses in data science, uh, in, in, in econometrics, uh, and, and, and how to justify uh, you know, wh whether something has worked or not. 
so, so, so a very kind of solid training in the more quantitative side, I think is, is absolutely crucial and I highly recommend it for anybody who wants a marketing career. So when I talk to the extremely creative people who come up with these, these wonderful ads, uh, you know, my, my typical kind of starting point is, okay, you do something fantastic and it's four times better than what the company has done before. Thanks to your fantastic creative, right? You use the right humor or the right tagline and so forth. But how will you show that later on? And I'm like, I can show this for you. I can show that in the past, the typical advertising creative for your brand has only kind of increased sales by 10%, but your creative increased sales 40%. Wouldn't that be so cool? And, and you know in your heart, right? You got the, uh, the FE Awards or you went to Ken Golden Lions and your advertising colleague said, well, this was absolutely so creative. But how do you demonstrate that to, to get the budget for next time and to kind of, wouldn't it be cool if you could do that? And we have the, we have the tools to do this. We can show to somebody who's mostly financially oriented that a, a, a better creative has three or four times the effect of, a, of an average creative. So why don't we do that? Uh, and, and that typically helps both the art and the science in the company. What, what kind of research are you, are you currently working on? If you could share some early findings. <laughs> so, so what I'm currently researching is very uh, controversial. So, uh, so after the 2016 uh, presidential election in the US, yeah. uh, I got together with several people actually there, there are in Germany. And we're like, well, we were a bit surprised with the outcome. And so we're really interesting in, in using all of the tools that we have in quantitative marketing to say, well, what really happened? So, so if, we, if we allow for everything to change, so instead of just focusing on social media or just on uh, press coverage of the candidates, if we put everything together, kind of you know, how much they spend on TV, what topics they thought about, what they said on social media, what people said about them on social media, and we put it all together into a nice framework. You know, what is the relative importance of all of these drives? Uh, and, and so that paper is actually available on the Social Science Research Network. And so right now, of course, we are revising it for a journal. And they said, well, we really want you to predict the 2020 US presidential election. <laughs> so, so that's what we're doing right now. We're like, OK, you know, before the election, can we use our tools and, and everything that we have to, to make a good prediction there? So that's, that's, that's one of the, of the, of the more uh, exciting things that I'm working on right now. So who's winning in 2020? Uh, I, you will have to know. I'll, I'll, I'll write it in, in my blog uh, uh, soon. Uh, so, so that's the other thing. So, so all of the papers that I have published, which is now over 70, uh, they're all available for free at, at my website, which is marketingandmetrics.com. So, so, so one of the things that I realized is that not every manager uh, has the time or the subscription to read academic journals. <laughs> so, so I wanted to make them available. I also blog about them every week. Uh, to have a more kind of accessible format, because I know that that everybody's short on time, um, and and that you know it's it's great to have it in a, in a more readily uh, readable format. Thank you for doing this, Kun. I I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Ushida.